Welcome to the Founder and Funder Experience, brought to you by Valence Advisory and Mattermade. This podcast serves to bring to light the different journeys select founders and funders took to get to where they are today. We hope their lives and their learnings continue to inspire both present and future innovators. Hi, everybody. My name is Arjun Devarora, and I'm the founder and managing partner of Valence Advisory. We support funds and founders and help them accelerate their efforts via people, strategy, and capital. And now off to John. Hello, John Lowe here. I'm the co-founder and advisor at Valence Advisory. I lead the leadership and communications efforts in partnership with Arjun Dev Aurora. But enough about us. Today, we have a wonderful guest. His name is Sachin Patel. And I won't say too much about what he's doing now and what he's been up to. I'll let him introduce himself and tell us, Sachin, uh, who are you and what are you working on now? Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me here. I'm uh, excited to have this conversation with you. Um, I, uh, as you mentioned, I'm Sacha Patel. I'm a founding partner of a seed stage venture capital fund in San Francisco called Homebrew. Uh, along with my partner, Hunter Walk, we are trying to invest in mission-driven founders who are leveraging technology in some novel way to democratize access. Could be democratizing access to products, services, data, customers, revenue streams, markets. But we really believe that technology, as it's getting cheaper, more flexible, more accessible, is finally being leveraged in ways that historically hasn't been leveraged. And uh, that's happening most profoundly in mainline industries. And so we end up doing a lot of sexy software for unsexy industries. And uh, that's kind of what we've been doing for coming up on eight years now. Nice. Wow. Very nice. Congratulations. And so, uh, Satya, like, uh, you know, unless I'm wrong, I don't think you started your career way back with the intention to become a venture capitalist. Yeah, very few of us do, I think. <laughs> yeah. And, and and yourself, you've had quite an extensive and accomplished career in tech. Um, so how did Homebrew come about for you? You know, what, what really um, inspired you to pivot from a career, uh, the previous career, into uh, taking on what most would say is a huge undertaking, involves a lot of risk, and without an MBA and prior experience in institutional funds is a very hard process to raise a fund. Yeah. I always tell people like the only two things to optimize for when you're making your career decision is people and problem. Um, and homebrew, I think, is a direct result of that. So first and foremost, uh, Hunter and I, we had met at Google back in 2003 and worked on the same product team, uh, had become very close friends over the course of time. And so we had always looked for opportunities to collaborate and do things together. And it just so happened that in the end of 2012, uh, I was in the process of uh, leaving Twitter and he was finally considering leaving his job at YouTube. And so we saw an opportunity to work together again. And, and that was the genesis of Homebrew really was the idea that we wanted to spend time and collaborate and work together again in some way, shape or form. We didn't know what that was going to be. The second decision was to focus on a particular problem, uh, which I alluded to earlier. And that was this idea that technology could be used to help the long tail compete more directly with the head of the tail, so to speak. And that was a common thread in our careers where we saw Google and Twitter and YouTube and some of the angel investments we had made as companies that were building platforms that helped democratize access to products and services that allowed them to compete more effectively. And so that was a trend that we believe is going to be a multi-decade trend that has taken hold over the last couple of decades, but that we wanted to continue to be a part of um, in some in a way, shape, or form. And the last decision was actually to raise a venture fund. We spent a lot of time trying to figure out whether we wanted to start a company. There are companies that wanted us to join as executives, as a team, 
Uh, we looked at an incubator model, a advisory model, um, all these different things. And ultimately, we decided on raising a venture capital fund because as product people in our prior lives, we try to identify white space and we saw white space in the market. And that was really based on the angel investing and advising that we had done, where we saw that founders who had taken money from institutions and other folks, whenever they had a problem, for whatever reason, oftentimes we were still the first call when that problem needed some uh, feedback or uh, uh, assistance in in addressing. Um, And that was really curious to us. And the more we spent time on it, the more we learned and saw that at the seed stage in particular, there were plenty of places to get capital, uh, even more now than when we first started. But we still think it's true that there aren't very many investors who are willing to be the investor of record, so to speak. The investor who's accountable, who spends real time and commits not just capital, but sweat and reputation to the founders that they're backing. And so we saw that as white space and we wanted to build a product that addressed that white space. And so that's kind of how we narrowed in on Homebrew. We knew that... Um, Capital was kind of the cost of entry in their relationship with the founder. And we didn't feel like we wanted to uh, rethink the venture capital constructor model. Um, So we raised a traditional venture capital fund with the idea that we would sit at the intersection of a very concentrated investment model, you know, kind of eight-ish companies a year with fund one, kind of 20 companies in the fund, working super closely with those companies uh, to help them build the businesses that they envisioned. And that the, the other piece of that intersection was the thesis around kind of democratizing access, what we originally called kind of this idea of the bottom-up economy. And so that's what led to Homebrew. And we've stayed true to that vision and mission and uh, haven't deviated from a model or strategy standpoint, for better or worse. And we've been super lucky to be able to be really selective in the companies we work with and the founders we choose to spend time with and have them choose us. And the results so far have also been quite good. And so we feel very fortunate that we've been able to take, you know, our careers and the development of ourselves over the course of time and apply it in this way. We, we're big believers that everybody in technology is standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Like everything that we're doing now is based upon something that was built in the past or somebody who uh, gave you a helping hand to help you take the next step in your career. And we want to be able to contribute in that way to the ecosystem. And, and Hobrew is the manifestation of that. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. That's uh, really well said. And one of the things you mentioned was, you know, doubling down on being supportive and partnering with your concentrated portfolio. You know, being so experienced in product and tech yourself, specifically yourself, um, having such deep product experience. When you bring that experience to the table and supporting your portfolio founders, how do you toe the line between facilitating answers that they should be finding themselves versus like the bias to try and solve it instinctively based on your experience? Yeah, that's a great question. That's I think that's one of the toughest challenges that an investor who comes from the operating side faces, right? They all try to grip too hard, right? If I, if I were in your shoes, this is what I would do, right? And so, you know, fortunately, I'd been an investor before. Hunter was, had not been a professional investor before. So I knew kind of, or had the muscle memory to figure out how not to, you know, grip too hard. And, and Hunter, because we had the conversation, was well aware that that was a trap that one could fall into. And, you know, we also have great mentors in the industry who we spend time with and learn from. And so we really look at the investor's job to pressure test the thinking and the assumptions and to ask great questions, but not to provide the answers. And 
we also knew that at the seed stage in particular, any answers that we were likely to provide were probably wrong anyway, right? There's very few companies at the seed stage who end up in the same place that they envisioned when they started. So our number one job is to back people, right? We're actually not backing an idea because idea is likely to change. Uh, we're backing people who have a long-term vision for how the world should behave uh, and how they get there may change dramatically and is likely to change dramatically over the course of time. And so we can't have too strong a point of view around how things should be done or what should be done because the founders are the experts. We're likely to be wrong. And any relevant experience we had from the operating side is probably aged out at this point, right? Uh, we maintain the empathy of having been on the operating side and having to scale organizations and manage teams and all those kinds of things. But anything that tactically we knew and learned at that point probably isn't that useful anymore. Well, thanks for sharing that. It's really helpful to hear it so well articulated coming from an investor and venture capitalist. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, having been in the uh, profession of venture capital for some time now, you mentioned, you know, aside from learning to, you know, filter out your instincts of past professions, how has the profession grown you personally uh, as a person or, you know, both as a professional? Uh, what were some of the, you know, highlight learnings you had in supporting founders in this fashion? Interesting question. I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. You know, one of the things that both Hunter and I really enjoyed about being executives of technology companies was putting in place amazing people so that they could succeed and be successful in their own careers. So kind of this idea of coaching was something that we really enjoyed. And I'd like to think I'm a even better coach now than I was uh, on the operating side because like anything, the more at-bats you have, the better you get at it. And you know, now having made you know, a lot of investments and worked with a lot of founders, I feel like I'd be an even better manager on the operating side. And certainly, uh, I'm a better investor than when I started on the VC side. So that's one thing. The second thing is I think one of the things that you learn doing this job is that there's more similarities in startups than there are differences. And so it's not pattern recognition, but it is an empathy for founders and understanding that they all face similar challenges and knowing how to address those challenges or be supportive uh, at different times is a skill set that I think is incredibly valuable and that we've continued to hone and learn over the course of time. And then the last thing is, which I think a lot of people in, who are outside of VC are thinking about VC, VC don't appreciate, you know, our point of view is like being a venture capitalist has very little to do with business or technology. It's primarily sales and psychology that are our domains of expertise. And so I think we, I touched upon the psychology pieces a little bit, but I think we've become better salespeople as well. You know, uh, we're always selling, right? Whether it's to companies who we want to give money to, to candidates we're helping close for founders, to the next set of investors who we want putting money into our companies, to LPs to raise our own funds. And I think that, again, is something that you can easily get better at uh, over the course of time. And, and, and I feel like we've, we've definitely done that as well. Wow. So well said. And just to clarify, what specifically do you mean by better salespeople? Because that can mean a lot of things to people, depending on which context they're applying sales to and yeah. what sort of value system they have for determining a successful sale yeah. or unsuccessful sale. It will be a good opportunity to unpack that a bit, I think. Yeah. You know, I, I like to say like the best deal is one where everyone leaves a little unhappy, right? No one side feels like they won. And I think selling is similar in that regard. Like I think once you appreciate that your job in selling 
is not to win, but to create a win-win, then you focus on helping to first uh, identify what the other side's problem is, two, uh, how best you can solve that problem for them, and then three, uh, setting proper expectations so there are no surprises after the sale. Mm-hmm. And I think whether you're talking about a customer, a candidate, a partner, those rules all apply in all those situations. And so I think we've just gotten uh, even better at asking questions and figuring out how to get to the bottom of all those things and then being absolutely transparent about what the other side can expect once they've consummated whatever that transaction might be because that's what's going to set both sides up for success uh, over the long run. And, and we realize that we're playing a very long game here. And all sales is really a really long game, even though a lot of people tend to treat it as a transaction. Thank you. That was super helpful insight. And, you know, Zajia, one of the things, you know, I think a rare few founders appreciate or understand, and to be fair, don't have the time to, is that raising a venture fund is like a startup itself because mm-hmm. y'all have to raise money from your LPs too. So I think, you know, it'd be nice if you could share a bit about the behind the scenes challenges of getting things right with your LPs and how that actually enables the innovation ecosystem, right? It enables both you and Hunter in this case, because he's your partner to actually double down on investments with conviction based on criteria and understandings you have. Um, if I understand your, I'll try to answer what I understand the question to be, um, but please correct me. So I guess the first thing I would say is it's certainly true that we think of founders as our customers, but LPs enable us to be in business, right? So they're a key stakeholder. But at the end of the day, you know, if founders are successful, they get paid first, our LPs get second, paid second, and we get paid last. Um, and yeah. so we always think about that, uh, whenever we're making any decision. So, the the challenge with raising a venture capital fund, the primary one is with LPs, there's no sense of urgency because they always believe they're going to get a second or third bite at the apple, right? Um, even if they don't invest in the first fund, they, they know they'll get a look at the second fund or the third fund. There's no like process that's being run, generally speaking, where a fund is going to close on a particular date and everyone's trying to make a decision by then, uh, like in a venture fundraising, uh, fundraising round. And then unlike a lot of venture funds, I think LPs think even more carefully about portfolio construction and wanting to know that any GP they back brings a different kind of uh, asset to the portfolio than everything else. Like, are they accessing different types of companies? Do they have a different... Uh, portfolio construction approach than other GPs that we're investing in. All those kinds of like nuances that a venture capital firm doesn't think of in the same way. And so I would argue that it's much harder to get a yes from an institutional LP than it is to get a yes from a, a VC. And to your point, I think that just gives us empathy for what it is like to raise money as a founder because uh, we're raising money every you know two, three, four years, just like a founder might be for their companies. Um, but from an audience that I think is a little bit more difficult to navigate. Uh, for a whole host of reasons. The other thing that's tough about the LP ecosystem, as you know, is, you know, nowadays every VC is uh, a social media marketer, right? Uh, and has a website and a podcast and a newsletter. Uh, that LP community continues to be a black box, right? Like learning who these people are, learning their perspectives, what they care about is still an art because none of it's out in the public domain. And that makes it a lot harder from a fundraising perspective if you're a venture fund. I think the keys, even like starting a company is like, you've got to articulate why you, 
why your strategy is differentiated and founders will want your money, why you believe you'll be able to generate outsized returns, right? So you're telling a story in the same way a founder is telling a story for their startup and trying to communicate founder market fit, a legitimate business strategy, and convince the LP that you're going to you know, be the next unicorn fund. And so there's a, there's a lot of similarities. And I think at the end of the day, we try to keep in mind that we're, we're beholden to LPs, but secondarily behind founders who we're beholden to first. Did that answer your question? That did that and more. <laughs> and um, I forgot what I was going to ask, but you said something very interesting. Um, you know, so one of the things Arjun and I believe, have, you know, having worked with quite some founders now, um, is that founders have the right to be frustrated at the VC industry and VCs and the fundraising process. But we always, we always do so. We, we like to say that, but you should still have a healthy relationship with VC. Mm -hmm. Right. And would love to hear from your perspective. What is, you know, regardless of how frustrating fundraising can be, for particularly uh, siege stage startups or how frustrating behaviors of certain uh, uh, VCs can be in the industry. What do you think is a healthy relationship a founder should have with VC as an idea construct and as an industry? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think you and Arjun are exactly right. Like uh, raising venture capital is a choice, right? Like you, you don't have to do it. There's nothing that says like it's a requirement for building a business. So if you're going to make that choice, you should approach it as an opportunity to add to your team, to increase your odds of success uh, in the same way that you would in you know, hiring somebody um, or choosing a particular strategy or whatever it might be. And so if you're going to pursue venture capital, the only way to have that be a satisfying experience is if you don't approach, approach it in an antagonistic way, particularly because as is you know, well-documented, you don't get to fire your venture capitalists, right? Once you make that commitment, you're married uh, with no option of divorce. And so we think it's really important that people take time to build relationships. We, you know, we really struggle with the current fundraising environment or what has existed for the last few years where decisions are getting made uh, super quickly because we view this as uh, a long-term relationship. And as much as we want to get to know founders, founders should get to know us too, because you know, we're going to be part of their team for a very long time. And I think founders who don't take that kind of approach, as you said, kind of a healthy mindset uh, to venture capital um, are going to be unsatisfied uh, with the, the end outcome of whatever process that they run um, because it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If you look at it as a necessary evil and I just want to get this done, uh, you're likely to end up with a suboptimal outcome relative to approaching it in a way that is focused on the long-term value and the long-term relationship and hopefully is something where uh, it ends up being you know, productive and valuable, both personally and professionally, over a very long period of time. It's, the, you know, it's certainly the type of relationship we like to have uh, based on trust and transparency and personal commitment with our founders and with the companies we work with. Thank you. Thank you, Satya. And just to you know, kind of pivot a bit in the questioning, something fresher, I realized that You've been on the board of the uh, Kip Foundation for quite some time, mm -hmm. and they obviously do some great work. But is one of the areas of interest for you really disrupting education, or taking a different approach, or making a, a as a way to you know make the world more equitable for all uh, aspects of our population? Uh, what's the story there? Yeah, um, I've been a big 
advocate for kind of education as the great equalizer for a long time. In the same way we think of technology, I think edu- education fundamentally is for the broadest set of people. I uh, was fortunate to kind of make my way through the public school system in the U.S. I graduated from a high school with 3,000 kids, but received a good enough education to be able to go to college and and then benefit from a, a very different caliber of education um, at Penn. And so I just see how education can unlock opportunity. And so for me, organizations like KIPP that believe your destiny is not dictated by your, the zip code in which you were born are, you know, doing God's work in terms of creating opportunities and paths for people to uh, improve their lot in life uh, for themselves and their families and their communities. And so I certainly am looking for opportunities to, I wouldn't call it disrupt education, but certainly improve education for as many people as possible. Like like a lot of areas in venture capital, when you know an area too intimately, it kind of makes you skeptical of a lot of things. And so while we would love to invest in head tech, ed tech and homebrew and look at a lot of investments, we've actually not made any uh, in the ed tech space. I, I probably know the world a little too intimately and know the challenges that it, that exist in dealing with the existing educational system. So we're certainly doing work around teaching people new skills around different models of education, but uh, we tend to have a, a skeptical eye on most of these things uh, for better or worse. Yeah, well, well said. And having been so close to this space for some time now, do you see a pattern of opportunity or what sort of key boulders need to be moved in order to, you know, accelerate, like you said, not disruption in tech, but accelerate changes that would make talent development and therefore, you know, uh, job equity more accessible for uh, the whole? Well, I, I think it's pretty clear and the evidence would suggest that ultimately education comes down to the quality of the teacher. And there's a bunch of reasons why teacher quality isn't probably as high as it could be, especially relative to lots of other countries around the world. And so I think that would be the first and foremost thing to address is how do we train our teachers, evaluate our teachers, give them access to the resources that they need to be successful. Um, But it all starts with teachers. And as I said, there's a lot of things that uh, impact that and make that a really difficult challenge. You know, first and foremost would be the teachers union, uh, which makes it almost impossible to remove teachers who are underperforming and and doing harm in classrooms. So we we can spend hours on education and kind of what needs to change there, but uh, I'll leave it at that. Great. Excellent. And, you know, we're hitting for home on time now, but give, I want to give you the opportunity, two things, memorable moments, some of your memorable moments as a, as a VC and any uh, final words of advice you'd like to give for founders Emerging founders really entering this uh, space at the seed where, you know, competition is rampant. There's a lot of options to get funding and there's a lot of problems to solve. (laughs) Memorable moments. I mean, so many. And they all center around people for the most part. As I mentioned, you know, just like a founder should think about a long-term relationship when choosing a VC. I remember our first LP commitment. And somebody we were really excited to have on board who's an LP to this day, uh, institutional LP. And the idea that 
they as institution and he is a kind of lead on the relationship would choose to support us. They were our, you know, very first commitment when we were raising our first fund and put us in business basically. Like that was a special moment and special memory. Certainly we always love doing our LP meeting. I know it's a weird thing for VCs to say, but we it's one of our favorite days of the year because we get to talk about all the work we've been doing. And then we always have an event where we have all of our founders and all of our LPs get together. And so they get to talk to each other about our, our work. And it's just a special day. It's kind of like having a family reunion, right? Where you bring everybody who's important to you together. And so for us, like every year when we get to do that, we had to do that virtually this year, unfortunately, is just such a special memory. And then of course, you know, the, the victories, both big and small, um, are all special memories. Like, you know, companies that look on the, look like they're on the precipice and you're able to land a team at a place that's really good for their careers or, you know, something like uh, the acquisition of Plaid, which everybody knows about. And, you know, we get to celebrate um, having been a part of in some small way. Uh, those are all special memories, but they all center around people because at the end of the day, it's either people who helped you win in some way or people who you've seen kind of grow and become their best selves um, and achieve something that, you know, was just a twinkle in their eye when you first met them. Recommendations for founders. Uh, I think it's really easy to run a fundraising process in today's market when you're just stacking Zooms back to back, right? So it can feel like the right thing to do is just get that done and over with as quickly as possible. And so it ties to what I mentioned earlier, like this is a long-term game, right? And these are long-term relationships. So it may be easier to meet more investors and to get a fundraising done uh, in some, from a process standpoint. But I just encourage people to think carefully about who they're getting into business with and why. It's almost never been more important to do diligence on your investors. And so it continues to surprise me how few founders uh, actually do back channel references or ask for references on VCs. And I think it uh, is really easy to say like, uh, we're doing the pitch meeting, but we're, because we can't get together in person or... Um, you know, uh, have some more social time that we're not going to try to get to know this person on a personal basis in some way. And so, you know, being able to do that over Zoom is not ideal, but th that opportunity still exists and, and the right investors will want to do the same thing as well. So I just encourage founders to be diligent about fundraising. It continues to be true that it's a founder's market, uh, despite everything going on in the broader world and, econ and potentially the economy. <laughs> So it's a, it's a great time to be a founder. There's never been more opportunity that has been unlocked by technology. And there have never been more sources of capital and investors to choose from. So I think that's both... What is it? What is it? Uh, with great power comes great responsibility. And I think founders have a lot of power right now, but they also have a responsibility to wield that power wisely. <laughs>